0: Welcome to episode twelve seventy five of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from FanGraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Bellman Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of FanGraphs. Hello,
1: Williams Astadillo was photographed. Uh, All the holding, episodes
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> have started with those words, <laughs> with that a, exact intonation. <laughs> it's
1: it's going to be a, it's going to be a pattern. It's already a pattern. It's like you mentioned Groundhog Day. <laughs> you mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there's a picture. That was absent any sort of context of Williams Estadio holding a bow and arrow in what seemed to be a a bullpen. Mm -hmm. So via I I was made aware of this first by an article by Dan Hayes at The Athletic that just went into the Astadio story at some length. But there was a Mm -hmm. tweet, I guess I missed it, from September 13th by one at Ben underscore Martin 13. Has a picture of Williams Estadio holding the bow being looked at by a man who looks, I don't know, impressed or threatened. I'm not going to convey his body language, but the text of the tweet is, for those just becoming aware of Williams Estadio's Majesty, after seeing him run the bases last night, here he is shooting a bow and arrow in the bullpen a few hours before BP a few weeks ago. It was
0: his first time. It was a bullseye. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's pretty impressive. He is good at everything. And I also read that Dan Hayes story at The Athletic, and it had some interesting tidbits in there. It had Paul Molitor not ruling out the idea, seemingly, of having Astadio play every position in one game which is uh, something that a couple players have done in the past, but he seems particularly equipped to do that. Molitor said, I'm surprised you guys haven't tried to start the playing all nine position thing for him. Maybe use him as the opener and then go from there. That would be fun. And the other interesting thing I thought in there was that Astadio evidently showed Molitor highlights of himself playing other (laughs) positions in order to convince Molitor that he could play those positions. So the story says about Molitor, he has seen video evidence, which is one reason the legend has had room to be cultivated. Back in spring training, Molitor used Astadio behind the plate and at first base and third base, but the ever-confident Astadio also made Molitor aware he could play in the outfield if that was necessary Quote from Molitor, he showed me video of him playing outfield, including robbing a homer. (laughs) (laughs) I love that.
1: Just, just outstanding. And uh, maybe there's enough coverage now. It's always hard to know these things because teams make decisions for the ruin objective reasons. But it feels like this is no longer just Estadio was up for a few weeks and he made a little bit of noise and internet nerds freaked out. Like there's a lot of attention on Williams Estadio. He can't be ignored yeah. at this point anymore. If I don't know what it's going to take for him to not have a major league job next season. He is pretty clearly deserving. Just the fact that he struck out less than 3% of the time on its own is absurd. <laughs> and confirmed within that article, the Twins, based on their own internal analysis, have deduced that Williams Estadio is a quality pitch framer, which yeah. they have seen in the minors, they've seen in the majors, they've been using him as a catcher. So also in there, in the article, based on the Twins' internal analysis, they have confirmed that they consider Williams Estadio to be a positive pitch framer as a catcher. Mm-hmm. He's been good in the minors. I think baseball prospectors already suggested this, but Twins have yeah. even better data and they think that he's been good in the majors as well in a small amount of time uh based on like look he is a at the same time a very good athlete and not close to a premier athlete among his major league peers but Mm -hmm. i mean just he's the fact that he can catch and hit Alone is enough to make him a viable semi regular player. And then I don't know. I don't know what it is. Like, could you take any catcher? Could you take Yasmani Grandal and just put him in left field? And would he be as good as Williams Estadio? <laughs> like, the fact that he's open to playing at the positions, I don't know if that means he's actually good at them. I genuinely don't know. But I guess just his willingness to do anything it's more fun than even like Matt Davidson thinking about becoming a hitter and a pitcher
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and I will also note that baseball prospectus has Asadio as a slightly above average framer in his brief time behind the plate this season he's been worth half a run from framing and that matches his totals from previous seasons in the minors which we had noted earlier this year when we were sort of frustrated that he wasn't getting to catch this does seem to be a skill that he possesses and according to that story is working on and if he can do that and play catcher regularly, and also be a decent hitter, that is a big leaguer. And regardless of how many positions he can play, so I am glad that he is now a folk hero. But I think even better than that, he's just a, a genuinely serviceable player at the very least. So that's nice.
1: How do you feel about some? I, you you are you're very into music now. I don't know if you're like hipster into music, but. Obviously, there's the sensation of knowing something when it's unknown and then knowing something after it gets big. And we uh, like you were among the earliest adopters on the Internet of Williams Estadio fanhood. I came later to the game. I think you and Sam were among the very the, the very first. And how does it feel now that everyone is enjoying <laughs> the William Estadio like he's he's selling out arenas at this point. You're not just seeing in, in somebody's <laughs> right. basement.
0: Yeah, I was talking to Michael Babin about this recently, and and there were people who were into Astadio before I was, so I can't claim to be the the discoverer of Astadio either. I just think that I'm happy that everyone has found out about him. I mean, I got my article in about him early (laughs) on and I staked my claim and we talked about him on the podcast and now everyone gets to enjoy him. And that's great because it was one thing when he was a cult figure and he was only in the minors and we were all amazed by his strikeout and walk rates. And that was nice, but I wouldn't want to go back to that because that was before he made the big leagues and before we knew that he ever would make the big leagues. And even I didn't know just how lovable and watchable he would be even aside from being a a total outlier in so many ways so he has surpassed my expectations and i think he has brought joy to baseball fans collectively and i think that is more than worth giving up the the hipster cred of (laughs) knowing about him before most people did
1: one of the problems, one of the critiques of being sort of a, a numbers-first kind of writer or analyst is that you you might write about players before you actually know that much about who they are, what where yeah. they've been, what their experience is like, how they are as, as people. And it can, you know, like if you go back 10, 15 years, I don't know, find people writing good things about Bobby Jenks or something, and then it's like, oh, he's actually kind of an asshole. But you get, <laughs> it's just amazing that we've all gotten so lucky that Astadio, it's not even that he's not like... A bad dude, He we would be happy if he was just like a regular blends into the background kind of rookie. That wouldn't matter mm-hmm. as long as he's not, you know, committing felonies or something on right. the side or just like getting into arguments. But the fact that he is just so lovable and has like developed this instant connection with all of his teammates. Yeah, this is... In so many ways, Williams Acidio is just like three standard deviations above the mean.
0: Yeah. I talked to Michael on the Ringer MLB show this week about our favorite stories of the season or what we thought were the most notable stories of the season. And obviously, I got my Acidio mention in there, uh, even though that's not a universal sentiment, probably, but it's getting there. And I'm sure that at the end of the playoffs, maybe we can talk about that too and talk about what stands out about 2018 for us. But there are other stories in baseball right now, some of them pretty big and some of them pretty exciting, and it's tough to podcast about baseball right now because things are changing so dramatically every day that the last time we talked, it seemed like things were sorta sealed up. There were still races, but looked like there were clear favorites. And then since the last time we talked, things have tightened considerably to the point that people are talking about plausible four-way ties and five way ties. And by the time people hear this episode, some of those scenarios will maybe be more plausible, or others will be a lot less plausible. So things are changing very much by the day here, but we are really going down to the wire in the NL Lost and the NL Central. These are exciting races, and we are going to have meaningful baseball in the last weekend of the season.
1: Look, you can talk about the pennant races in the playoffs all you want. The Baltimore Orioles' Chris Davis, over, over his last 10 games, <laughs> has gone one for 37 with 20 strikeouts. Chris oh, no. Davis, <laughs> I, I thought there was a little point. In the middle of the year where he was sort of coming out of it a little... Like, he wasn't uh, he wasn't good. I think that's the word, mm-hmm. good. He has had his <laughs> his, his highest WRC Plus in a month this year is 88, which is bad. But I mm-hmm. thought at least in July and August, he was... He could be like the sort of the Pujols kind of player, right? Where you know he's a problem, but he's not just like so out and out dreadful that... Like, mm-hmm. you're the Orioles. You can just kind of look past it. In September, his WRC Plus is negative 13, Chris Davis... As a season WRC Plus of 45, as a first baseman, he has a Fangraphs war of negative 3.2, which ties him for the (laughs) fifth worst of all time with 1985 George Wright, who had a WRC Mm -hmm. Plus of 28. And as I believe we've discussed before, at least according to Fangraphs, the worst single season war of all time for position players, 1933 Jim Levy of the Browns Mm at negative 4. Chris Davis probably can't get there in a week. But given what he's done for the last 10 games, maybe he actually could.
0: Yeah, there's so much at stake in this last week for stories that we have followed all season long. The other Chris Davis, right? His run mm. at a fourth consecutive season of batting exactly 247. <laughs> that is also <laughs> coming down to the wire. He is batting 249 as we speak going into. Wednesday's action so that is still very much in play that he could extend that already unprecedented streak and of course as we speak Jacob deGrom is going on right now he is pitching against the Braves and this will decide whether he ends the season with a higher war or a higher old school wins total so we're about to get some resolution there it seems like is this it is this his last start I think it probably will be, right? I I guess he could get into another game, but I don't know if he'd have another regularly scheduled start after this. I think this might be it. And along those same lines, the Clayton Kershaw streak that we have discussed, that I've written about – That one, unfortunately, it looks like has been snapped. Clayton Kershaw's streak of lowering his career ERA with each successive season in the majors. He has remarkably managed to do that year after year, every year in his career up to this point. Even though in his rookie year, he had a 4.26 ERA, which was not bad to begin with. And then he was just amazing for year after year after year, but still managed to do it. This year, he is not going to do it. He... Theoretically had a chance to do it, even heading into his most recent start. But he entered this season with a 2.36 career ERA and right now has a 2.53 for the season, which has raised his career ERA to 2.38. Although I will salute him for making it that close because I did not think it would end up that close given how he was pitching at the start of the season.
1: Yeah, so I guess we need new streaks. Chris Davis' yeah. streak is interesting, but the likelihood is that that one's going to end. But just the fact mm-hmm. that he's so close, I don't know. What a weird thing to become interested in.
0: <laughs> I know. <laughs> it is very strange.
1: We talked about that a little before, I guess, some time ago, just talking about how and why it's happened. But, mm-hmm. I mean, a two forty seven batting average, and that's just, that's interesting. It, it, yeah, <laughs> the, the uh, we had that conversation a, a week or two ago about how like the new age numbers are just like ruining baseball fandom. But there are so many more things you have the opportunity to care about that are
0: stupid, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not a new age one, but well, no, that is, uh, <laughs> But we still care about the old ones in some ways. I mean, we care about Jacob DeGroms wins total in relation to his war which is just a new way to look at it I guess we would care about it anyway just because he is uh, such a strong Cy Young contender and might win that award with the fewest wins ever but yeah we care about these things even though we no longer look at them as the best ways to evaluate players they can still be fun trivia and curiosities at least
1: yep I have, uh, I have nothing further to add, although I think that uh, today's Stat Blast, when we get to it, will also involve the happy Chris Davis.
0: <laughs> okay, good. All right, so we're going to do emails, and I'll start with some pennant race-related emails as a way to continue talking about timely topics. So this is a question from David, Patreon supporter. He says, I found myself in an internet argument. I should always avoid them. And the person he was arguing with claimed that the Cubs' offensive woes this season and decline in home runs can be blamed on Chili Davis's philosophy of contact and opposite field hits. Chili Davis, of course, in his first year as the Cubs hitting coach, he pointed to Boston's offensive resurgence this season as them removing Chili from the equation. Davis used to be their hitting coach. He cited Wilson Contreras, Ian Happ, Albert Almora, and Addison Russell, all of whom increased their ground ball percentage and opposite field hits as evidence of their regression. On the other hand, I found that Kyle Schwarber, Chris Bryant, and Anthony Rizzo didn't seem to change substantially. I also stated that a single-season sample is dubious at best, and especially since home runs as a whole are down significantly this season compared to last season. I guess my question is the following Did the Cubs' offense change significantly from last season to this season? Could the offensive change be attributable to more contact, more ground balls, and more opposite field hits as opposed to hitting dingers? Or did the overall home run decline muddy the waters? And so I entered this earlier via email and I sent some stats over to David. So My take on this, if you look at the overall offensive numbers of the Cubs' non-pitchers this year compared to their non-pitchers last year, last year they had a 108 weighted runs created plus, this year 107. Their ground ball rate has gone from 44.7% to 45.3%. That's a change of 0.6 percentage points. (laughs) Their strikeout rate is down from 21.1% to 20.8%. So that's a decline of 0.3 percentage points. And their rate of opposite field hits is up less than 2 percentage points. The homers are down somewhat dramatically, it's true, and maybe there are other small changes you could identify there, but it doesn't seem to me that there is that much difference in the team's offensive production here.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't really see much of anything. I went to the, straight to the same thing that you did, which was non-pitcher WRC+. That is not a surprise because we share our brain a brain in many respects. So you can identify, <laughs> I think there are two players. Wilson Contreras's offense has has dropped off for reasons I haven't examined, but for example, last year he slugged 4.99. This year he's slugging 3.89. That's not good. His he, but mm-hmm. he's been a a grand ball hitter. He's actually very slightly less of a grand ball hitter. This year than he was last year, but his pull rate is the same. It's just that his power has evaporated, which is weird. With Chris Bryant, at least, his power has also dropped off. His select percentage has lost something like 80 points, which is also not good. Last year, he hit 29 home runs. This year, he's hit 12. But to my knowledge, he's been battling a shoulder problem for what seems like quite some time. He didn't really look like himself early on, hasn't recovered completely. So Chris Bryant, I think you can blame some sort of shoulder problem. And Wilson Contreras, you can blame something else. But outside of that, the team's offense has been... Fine. And it seems like the Mm -hmm. real trouble here is that the Cubs pitching staff is underachieved and the Brewers have been better. And so it just applies more pressure on the Cubs than they faced last
0: season. Yeah, although I will say in September the Cubs haven't hit at all. I mean, that's been a big part of their drop off very recently. They've just been total kind of power outage. I think they have something like a a seventy-five WRC plus this month or something in that range. I mean, it's bleak, it's bad and That's part of it, but I don't think you can blame that on a hitting coach because then you'd be arguing that they showed no ill effects from the hitting coach for the first five months of the season and then Mm -hmm. suddenly abandoned everything and and went astray in the last month of the season. I don't know that the timeline really makes sense there, and I think as they have— cratered in this month I think they've struck out more so it's not as if they're just going all contact and that's hurting them so it doesn't really fit the narrative to me but it's true that the Cubs have not hit at all recently which also means that up until this month they were hitting better than they had last year so that was not their problem for most of the season and and the pitching staff has improved as the season has gone on, right? There was a, a Fangraphs post about that not long ago, I believe. So there's been some improvement there and some downturn in the offense. And it's led to this point where the Brewers and the Cubs are almost neck and neck as we speak.
1: Yeah, I will say, so last year, the Cubs ranked sixth in the majors in runs scored. And this year, they, uh, they rank 11th, which is worse. So, you know, there's been a little bit of Worse, uh, worse timing. Run scoring overall is down a little bit, just because the home runs haven't been flying quite the same as they did last year. Mm-hmm. And what's uh, what's interesting is via Fangraph's version of clutch, that win expectancy metric that we like to play around with, this year, by offensive clutch, the Cubs are 6th worst in baseball, which is not very good. However, last year, the Cubs were 6th worst in baseball by the same metric. So, nothing has changed there. You could say, if anything, why are the Cubs uh, one clutch at the plate? I wouldn't worry about that too much, but at least that is something that has not changed. They have remained just as not timely. Uh, in large part because of Kyle Schwarber, who I wrote about today at Bancroft, he yeah. has been very not good, as I've mentioned on this podcast before.
0: Right. By the way, how bad were Joe Madden's comments about Addison Russell the other day? I'm sure you saw it was widely reported that Madden was asked on a, a radio show about his thoughts on the whole Addison Russell and his ex wife and the allegations, and he said essentially that he hadn't read them and he wasn't going to read them until MLB came to a Conclusion, and more than that, he said, "quote anybody can write anything they want these days with social media, blogging, etc." Which is technically true, of course, but it kind of goes out of its way to cast doubt on what Asin Russell's ex-wife wrote. And really, I mean, I don't expect. Joe Madden, you know, he has an obligation to the team and what he thinks makes the team better. And I don't expect him to come out and condemn Addison Russell before this investigation reaches its conclusion, which it sounds like it is proceeding and that Addison Russell's ex-wife has been participating and that her claims have been substantiated to some degree. But to basically cast doubt on... That without ever having read it, I mean, there's just no need to do that. Just say, I'm waiting to see what the committee decides or, you know, something wishy-washy if you want. You don't have to come out and say, suspend him and it's horrible, but just don't say something that really makes light of the allegations.
1: I understand if you were someone like Matt and he was a history of coming to his player's defense, even when those players are very clearly in the wrong. I, I understand the inclination, and I also understand that Joe Madden knows Addison Russell better than he knows Addison Russell's ex-wife. I understand there's a protectiveness and uh, there's there's a pre-existing blind, but the opposite of making a statement in favor, the opposite of, of siding with Addison Russell's ex-wife here is, I guess, what Madden did, but what he could have done very, very easily. It takes no effort at all to issue a statement that's just like, uh, I'll wait for the details to play out. Of course, you always have to be sensitive and and listen to these accusations. This is a very serious matter, etc. Just, you know, like the, the blanket statement that you can just offer that everybody has offered since the dawn of time, for the most part, when these things come up. And that way, if you're Joe Madden, and if you're like really uncomfortable taking a side in public, you can just do that. But he clearly wasn't uncomfortable in taking a side. And what his statement reveals is that he was just coming at this only really considering Addison Russell's perspective on it there's very little consideration given to the alleged victim in in mm-hmm. this these incidents and so i can i can understand maybe how Joe Madden feels in his brain in the parts that you don't you normally verbalize cuz maybe he really does like Addison Russell and maybe it's really difficult for him to imagine i don't know i don't know what's going on in Joe Madden's brain but those there are things when you were the manager of a team You are essentially the team's spokesperson, and the Cubs might consider hiring a spokesperson because their current (laughs) spokesperson is not doing a very effective job.
0: Right. All right. And David also asked a second question, which would be more surprising to the two of you considering how we felt at the start of the season, the Dodgers possibly losing to the Rockies in the NL West or the Cubs possibly losing to the Brewers in the NL Central?
1: Oh, Dodgers. Definitely yeah, the definitely Dodgers.
0: Dodgers. <laughs> yeah, by far the Dodgers. I mean, I don't know. In one sense, like the Rockies made the playoffs last year and the Brewers did not. So in that sense, it's not that surprising that they would be the one. But I think we just thought so highly of the Dodgers and thought lowly of the 2018 Rockies compared to the 2018 Brewers that that would definitely shock me much more.
1: I will say, so looking at the Fangraph's preseason odds, the Cubs were given an 81% chance to win the division, and the Brewers were at 2.5%, whereas in the <laughs> National League West, the Dodgers were at 85%, and the Rockies were at 4%. Now, uh-huh. based on that, you could say it's actually at least as surprising that the Brewers could overtake the Cubs. However, I would say that from the beginning, I had a pretty strong feeling. I think we, many of us had a pretty strong feeling that the projections were just down on the Brewers. I think maybe we weren't weighting the bullpen properly, but I don't know. These things are always easy to say in in retrospect, but the fact that the Brewers acted so strongly to get Lorenzo Cain and Christian Jelic when they did certainly implied that they thought their team was a lot better than the projections suggested. So something (laughs) seemed kind of weird and off about the Brewers from the get-go, but at least there is a mathematical reason to say that both are equally surprising. I don't buy it, but I will... Accept it, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, I am surprised that the Brewers didn't fade more than they did because it looked like they were there for a while after the deadline when they didn't get any pitching. And then suddenly their bullpen kind of tanked for a month and was bad and then got really good again. Bullpen performance fluctuates pretty dramatically. But It looked like they had made a mistake by getting Moustakis and Scope and not going for a starter because their rotation is really not a strength. And you look at the guys that they have pieced together this staff with, and it's almost like Oakland where you look and you think, what, Trevor Cahill and Brett Anderson and all these guys who, you know, Edwin Jackson, these are the guys that they're getting to the playoffs with. And it's largely on the back of a really effective bullpen. And that is true. In the Brewers' case, too I mean, they're getting great innings Out of Julius Chassine And, you know, like Wade Miley has been great And, I don't know They're kind of the the same sort of model Of, like, that guy And yet, here they are And they seem to be getting stronger with time
1: Yeah, I was curious before the trade deadline, so looking up through the uh, the end of July, the Brewers ranked fifth in baseball in ERA, which they would presumably use to say, "Look, we don't actually need that much pitching." But since the deadline, they ranked 16th in ERA, which mm-hmm. is considerably worse. But you know, there there is the concern that having that weird infield alignment would just kind of mess with them. Mm-hmm. And actually, their infield defense against grand balls has been okay, even after adding Mustakis and Scope and moving Travis Shaw around. So. The Brewers have been interesting, and they also go into the—if they make the playoffs, I should say. It's not a lock yet, but if they do make it to the playoffs, they're going to have the advantage of having like the only, I think, good, reliable bullpen in the National League. Certainly, they'll have the best bullpen of a playoff team in the National League, and their shortcoming is not hard to find. They have to get the ball to the bullpen. But outside mm-hmm. of that, I know like Braves fans have, have voiced discomfort with the bullpen that they have Cubs fans have voiced dis- discomfort with the bullpen they have Certainly now that they're down Pedro Strope and, and Bernard Morrow And Cardinals fans can't say anything good about their bullpen, and et cetera. It goes on and on and on And I think that the fans of those teams who are concerned about their bullpen Might not really realize that most of the National League has an unreliable <laughs> bullpen and, and only the Brewers have a really good one And even that one was was bad in August, so who even who even knows? Mm-hmm. John Hader gave up two home runs the other day What, what are we doing here?
0: Yeah, I know. And it bears mentioning again, I think, even though we have talked about it in the past, and I wrote about it last year, but the Brewers are really just the the model franchise in terms of going from bad to good again, because they never got truly terrible in between. And it's really impressive how they've done that. They've just picked up a lot of great depth pieces and Players who were not expected to be as good as they have, and they've pieced together this team that never got into the abyss the way that the Astros and the Cubs did. And granted, they're not a super team. They haven't come out the other side quite as well equipped as those two teams did, at least not yet, but they've managed to be very much in contention and among the best teams in baseball without ever bottoming out and they went and got Kane and they went and got Yelich, and those guys have been great and they spent and you know they could have chosen the route that other teams have chosen and they didn't and it's worked out really well.
1: So what if you think so one, one thing the Brewers did recently that was interesting and it happened I think it was what Monday night when the Brewers used a a one-out opener, and yes, that happened right. after we recorded, so we didn't get a chance to talk about it much. But it's not that different in that it was just an opener, which we've already seen. But the Brewers used lefty Dan Jennings to only face Matt Carpenter. Matt Carpenter was at the mm-hmm. top of the Cardinals lineup, and then they handed the ball to Freddy Peralta, who took it for a while from there. So what did you, what did you think, if you had any thoughts? I don't know if you had any thoughts.
0: I didn't. I know that Craig Edwards <laughs> wrote about this for FedGraphs, and I assume gave it a lot of thought, which I have not. Uh, But I, I don't know. I mean, is this exactly the same sort of thing that we've been seeing all year with other teams? Or is it different? I mean, it's different to use a situational guy there's been a, a matchup element to other uses of the opener and even the first use of the opener when Sergio Romo was lined up with the Angels and their very right-handed lineup that was partly because of situational considerations but mm-hmm. this is I, I guess the first time that we've seen it used in exactly this way
1: yeah I I mean there's, there's nothing I guess groundbreaking about it once you accept that the opener is already here but I guess it, to me it was more about well they brought in their their bulk guy so to speak but not to start a a clean fresh inning like mm-hmm. uh, Freddie Prawle didn't come in to just start the second he came in to take over in the bottom of the first when there was already one out now it would have been different I guess had Matt Carpenter reached base against Dad Jennings which he did not Carpenter being a lefty and Jennings being a lefty but anyway it was uh it was fun it's it's just neat I guess to see teams exploring and experimenting with this at this point of the season, especially teams in the hunt like Oakland has been starting Liam Hendricks for an inning and the Brewers now have opened with Dan Jennings and you wonder you wonder the playoffs start next week. Are we yes. going to see the opener in the playoffs or are we going to see it in the card game and, and that I, I don't know, but it, we clearly can't rule it out now and I don't even know. I, I get I'm conflicted over how interesting the opener is you know, because mm-hmm. it, realistically it doesn't change that much about how the game is played except it changes the entire concept of a starting pitcher which is complicated Mm -hmm. also it screws up our splits like it's really (laughs) yes it's really disappointing and frustrating to try to deal with in in the leaderboards
0: yeah, I mean if the the Brewers could face the Cardinals in the wild card game that's possible, then maybe they could do that again. Or against the Rockies with Charlie Blackman or or you know, if there are other guys you could do exactly that with, or I wonder how much of this is I mean, in the past we've talked about well why do teams even announce their starters? Why don't you do the maneuver where you announce one starter and you bring him out there for an inning or a batter and then you have a, a starter of a different handedness come in and suddenly the lineup is constructed to take advantage of the first starter and now it's another guy and you have a, the platoon advantage with more of the lineup, which is something that we don't talk about that much with the opener because no one really thinks of the opener that way like you set your lineup to face the the bulk guy or the guy who comes in after the opener so you get that situational advantage but you don't get like forcing the other manager to turn around his lineup to face someone else and then you bring out this surprise guy but Mm -hmm. that's something that we could see also
1: yeah, I agree. Uh, and I guess moving on from there, I would just point out that while we are recording this live, Jacob DeGrom has so far thrown three scoreless innings. The game is also scoreless.
0: <laughs> yep, that makes sense. All right. Oh, I meant to bring this up in the banter, but which collapse, if we could call hmm. any team a collapse this season? And I don't know that we haven't seen like a really historic, terrible collapse unless we see one in the next few days, which is still possible. But I guess if you consider, say, the Mariners a collapse in that they looked like a likely playoff team at one point and are not going to be, you could consider the Phillies a collapse, I suppose, in that they were extremely competitive all season long. And now you look at the standings and it looks like they weren't. I think they have a losing record now. And then you get the Diamondbacks, I guess, would be the other team that fit into that category, because I saw a stat somewhere, and I forget, I think it was maybe John Wiseman who tweeted this, that the Diamondbacks were in first place in the NL West on April 1st, May 1st, June 1st, July 1st, August 1st, and September 1st, I think (laughs) that was the stat, and they are not going to be in the playoffs. So of those, and if there are any others, I forgot, which do you think is the... I don't know, most notable surprise absence from the playoffs or the one that makes you the most concerned about the future.
1: (laughs) Well, if we're going to talk about that, this was like the Mariners chance, right? This was the year to make the playoffs because it's not getting better. It's not getting, Mm -hmm. I know you're out there, people who work for the Mariners, jump ship. (laughs) You have no choice. (laughs) Anyway, so if you, it depends, I guess, on how you want to look at it. If you look at the Just like the raw probabilities, the Mariners had the highest chance of making the playoffs between them, the Diamondbacks, and the Phillies. I don't think there were any other real collapses. There were teams that didn't match up to our expectations at all, like the Nationals. I guess they Mm -hmm. have had a bit of a collapse. And, you know, the Dodgers could still miss the playoffs. That would be dreadful. But anyway, just between the Mariners, Phillies, and Diamondbacks, Mariners had the highest odds. But on the other hand, they reached their peak in like June or or early July. And their collapse is in part their fault but also Oakland just kind of stopped losing ever so that's mm-hmm. something that kind of got in the way so while yep. the Mariners look bad on a graph i don't choose to i don't think that they've had the worst collapse if we're going to use that word so then it's it's between the Phillies and the Diamondbacks whose collapses were were more or less simultaneous mm-hmm. they both just fell apart around like the the middle of of august and i guess between them Gosh, how am I supposed to pick? Like,
0: <laughs> yeah. the Phillies have been well, really
1: bad, but the Diamondbacks have been really yeah. bad.
0: They have. They've also had a bunch of one-run games go against them, and but, you know, they're eight games back now as we speak, so it's been a, a pretty swift descent. I think that... With the Mariners, we all have the sense that things are getting worse after this. With the Phillies, we all have the sense that things are getting better after Mm -hmm. this. With the Diamondbacks, I don't know. Neither is all that clear. Like It doesn't seem like, oh, this is definitely the end, but it also seems like maybe it's getting toward the end with this group of players, so they're Mm -hmm. kind of in the middle there. I don't know. Do you think the Diamondbacks go into next season? I mean, who knows what happens between now and then, but based on what we know now, are a uh, playoff favorite next spring or are they just kind of in the conversation so to speak
1: no i think they're, they're going to lose a, a fair amount of talent aj pollock for example patrick corbin is a free agent i don't know what they're going to keep but i think that the diamondbacks are in i don't even know if they're in a, a necessarily better situation than the mariners because the mariners might have a worse team but they have more cost control of it more club control mm. of it so in and that's it. I think the Diamondbacks go into next year. They still have Paul Goldschmidt another year. They still have Zach Greinke under contract, and et cetera. The, they're not devoid of talent, but I think they're going to go in and realistically have to look at it. It's like we're going to hopefully be a wild card team because they're not going to compete with the big boys in free agency. I I can't imagine, and so it's going to be it's going to be rough. And now while I've been talking, I've been trying to figure out which collapses has been worse. The Phillies has been going on longer. I guess, so here uh-huh. here are some numbers. Uh, since August 8th, I guess, since August 8th, the Phillies have gone 14 and 30, which is bad. Oof. They've had yeah. a winning percentage of 318 and a Pythagorean winning percentage of 344. So they, have, they were in first place when this all began, very barely. The Braves have gone 28 and 19 cents, and so the Phillies have been left in the dust. Now, switching to the Diamondbacks, since August 22nd, They have gone 9 and 22. That is a 290 (laughs) winner percentage. That's the worst in the National League. That's also tied for the worst in baseball. Hey, tied with the (laughs) Orioles. So the Diamondbacks have dropped out 9 and 22. They have been outscored by 41 runs. And over that stretch, the Dodgers have gone 21 and 9, best in the National League. And the Rockies have gone 18 and 13. So we have, on the one hand, the Diamondbacks have been the worst team in the NL for 31 games. But the Phillies have been the worst in the NL for 44 games. So I guess <laughs> yeah. the Phillies or the Diamondbacks happened faster.
0: Then <laughs> yeah, that's true. Does that true. make it worse? Right. And I think also they had the higher expectations coming into yeah. the year, which, you know, I know that Phillies fans got invested in the Phillies winning this year, once it looked like they might, but still, I think you have to have some perspective about where they are in their competitive cycle and where we thought they would be, and so, in that sense, yeah, I'm going to go with Diamondbacks. Yeah, great. All right. Snapblast? last. They'll take a data set I something like And then they'll tease some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it for us in amazing ways. Here's today,
1: so, as I have mentioned on this podcast briefly before, and as I put up less briefly on Fangraphs on Wednesday, Kyle Schwarber has been awful, awful, awful in high leverage situations. He is batted. 56 times in his these are his most important plate appearances 56 times seven times he's been intentionally walked which they basically get thrown out intentional walks are base runners that's good but opponents only issue intentional walks when there's not too much of a cost you know how these Mm -hmm. things work six of those seven intentional walks have been with a runner on second and no one on first base so anyway 49 more plate appearances non-intentional walks for kyle schwarber in high leverage situations three walks two hits both singles that's it. Mm-hmm. WRC plus of negative 62. That is <laughs> the not only easily the worst this season, it is the worst since 2002, which is as far back as the Fangraph's splits go. That's bad enough. And in, uh, in low and medium leverage situations, Kyle Schorber's had a WRC plus of 137, which is quite good. That's 37% better than average by definition. So the mm-hmm. difference between those numbers is 199 points, which is the biggest on record, the record being 16 years, The biggest difference by 59 points over Jim Tomey in 2008. So that's already fun, but this isn't just about Kyle Schwarber. I didn't want to repurpose an article I wrote just for the stat blast. There is also, with any leaderboard, there is the other side of it. Is there not? So, yes. This season, while Kyle Schwarber has had a WRC plus of negative 62 in high leverage (laughs) situations, negative 62, the next worst is negative three. And by the way, Chris Davis, the Orioles Chris Davis is at nine, third worst. But Uh the other, other Chris Davis, the A's version, leads baseball in high leverage situations. He's got a WRC plus of 227. And in (laughs) second place, his teammate, Jed Lowry, 212. That's good for the A's. Chris Davis of the A's has a difference of plus 103 points of WRC plus between high leverage situations and all other situations. Jed Lowry has a difference of 99 points. That Puts Lowry in second, tied with Robinson Chirinos. Now, as long as we're going to do this, going all the way back to 2002, the best high leverage season on record for a hitter belongs to 2009 Ryan Howard, whose high leverage WRC plus was 303. And the biggest difference on record between high leverage and all other situations also belongs to 2009. Ryan Howard with a difference of 180 points. Kind of sadly, but as long as we're remembering things, 2014 Orioles, Chris Davis is in second place. He had a very incredibly good high leverage season in 2014. So Chris Davis can always reflect back on his positive memories. They are mostly distant at this point, but I guess he does have at least one hit in his last 10 games. Anyway, uh, Oakland's Chris Davis, very good. And 2009, Ryan Howard, exceptionally good. Was that the Ryan Howard MVP season? It was not. No, that was his uh, third place MVP finish season, Ryan Howard, in, in 2009. However, if I can just read a few numbers from fan graphs, because that's what the stat blast is. So I mentioned a WR surplus of 303. In high leverage situations. So just so you know what that means, Ryan Howard, in 2009, in high leverage situations, batted 66 times. He had 12 home runs. He batted 404. He had an on-base percentage of 470, and he slugged 1.140. So Ryan (laughs) Howard, unbelievably good in 2009. Pretty clutch player back uh, back then in retrospect. But, you know, all things Mm -hmm. pass, and then reputations go awry.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. All right, continuing with emails, Joe says, Bryce Harper has hovered between negative 0.9 and plus 1.5 defensive war. As defined by Baseball Reference throughout his career, this year he is at negative 3.2 defensive war. He's also at a negative 26 runs of fielding, that is defensive runs saved. This seems very low, like really low. To look at some other outfielders' historically poor seasons, And then he has a list here. We've got 1993 Kirby Puckett at negative 3.1 defensive war. We've got 2010 Matt Kemp at negative 3.5 defensive war. We've got 99 Dante Bichette at negative 3.9 defensive war. And then the champion 2009 Adam Dunn at negative 5.2 defensive (laughs) war. And Joe says, is this a historically poor season that we are seeing on defense for Mr. Soon-to-be-super-rich-guy, probably Bryce Harper. Yes, I I guess, by virtue of the fact that he is that high or that low on the leaderboard, it is, and... You know, I've looked at MLB's StatCast metric, which I trust a little more for range, at least, in small samples. And Bryce Harper right now ranks 80th of 84 outfielders, according to MLB's StatCast metric. And he is at negative 12 on that leaderboard. That is outs above average. So whatever metric you look at, he has been a bad outfielder this year. And... That certainly seems like something that could have an impact on his free agency.
1: Yeah, what's weird, uh, also, if you look at StatCast, Harper hasn't really slowed down. He's still been an above-average runner, but according to StatCast now, this is just outs above average. This ignores ARM, and this also accepts all the flaws that outs above average might have. In 2016, Harper was four outs below average. In 2017, he was five outs below average, and this year, he is 12 outs below average. That's a, a pretty significant drop-off and and is well. Yeah. If you look at the arm numbers based on not just defensive run save, but also UZR, his arm, for some reason, and I haven't investigated this, and I don't know if you have, has really dropped off. His historically, <laughs> according to Defensive Run Saved, prior to this season, his arm was plus 17 runs. This season, he's at negative six. And according to ultimate zone rating over his career prior to this season, his arm was plus 17 runs, and this year he is at negative 5. So I don't know what has actually happened with Bryce Harper's arm, but that is a another contributor here because it's not just a matter of his range. It's that his his arm has just not been as much of a as much of a weapon and it's yeah i can tell you he only has one assist for whatever that's worth last year he had 8 he stopped out at 13 in in 2013 so i don't know if if maybe there's something wrong with Bryce Harper's arm could be noise i guess but it's definitely a concern as as evaluators consider whether they would r- rather have Manny Machado
0: yeah unfortunately we can't look up arm strength right without DMing Mike Petriello and (laughs) asking him to send it to us But I would guess that that probably says the same sort of thing So that's a concern Obviously his bat is the big draw And that is what teams will be bidding on But we know that they consider the player holistically And so if Bryce Harper is a bad outfielder now That is something that teams will take into account Still going to get a lot of money
1: (laughs) We can try to So at Baseball Reference they have some additional numbers here so let's just mm-hmm. see if these pass muster so okay we know that bryce harper's assists are down now there are direct assists and then there are secondary assists secondary assists are those are the less delightful assists nobody cares about a secondary assist that's like you <laughs> throw the ball to a cutoff guy and then he throws somebody yeah. out nobody cares so in yeah. 2016 when bryce harper had the opportunity uh to hold a base runner based on a batted ball. He held the base runner 58% of the time. The uh, league average is, I don't know, lower than that. Last <laughs> year he held the base runner 51% of the time, and this year 44% of the time. <laughs> so there's some evidence that runners are also taking more chances against Bryce Harper. So yeah, there is there's something here to investigate. And some some number of front office, I don't know if they're gonna be interns or just analyst people, but as teams go into free agency, Every team who's interested in the Bryce Harper market is probably going to have at least one person whose project is to investigate Bryce Harper's arm. And then at the end of the day, the owner is just going to give him $400 million regardless, and it's not going to matter. So have fun with your winter research projects, analyst people. It's not going to matter. But at least we're curious right now as we talk about this on the air.
0: Yeah. All right. Cody sends a linked video, and this is a video from a Brewers game where, as he says, Mike Moustakis gets in the way of a pickoff throw and the resulting carom allows Eric Thames to score from home. And Cody says, my hypothetical is this. What if a player intentionally dove at pickoff throws with the intention of headbutting the ball out of play? (laughs) Would this be the same as the pitcher throwing the ball directly out of play and allowing all runners to advance? How many times could a player do this before pitchers stop trying to pick him off? Do you think anyone could successfully headbutt the ball out of play without taking one to the face? And I can link to this video for anyone who wants to see it. It's just the stock is diving back into first and the throw is wide. So it hits him instead of getting to the glove. It's certainly not intentional, but it does make you think what if you tried to get in front of pickoff throws instead of just trying to get back to the bag?
1: I don't have. So, having uh, having put my head in the way of at least one fast-moving baseball before in my life, I'm not yes. enthralled by the prospect of doing it more. However, no. I am enthralled by the prospect of finding tiny little advantages that you can do during the middle of a game. <laughs> and, I mean, they, they yeah. make helmets pretty good these days. So, I wonder yeah. I wonder if you could see what, what could really make a difference. I don't know if it's a matter of deflecting the ball in play, but if you could just dive. And if you could, like... What are the rules on the exterior of helmets? And I'll tell you where I'm <laughs> going with this. Because right now, helmets are smooth, and, and they're round, so the ball already would bounce somewhat unpredictably. But what if you could add, like, texture, you know? Like uh-huh. little, like, nooks like and crannies and grooves. And, yeah, uh-huh. not necessarily spikes, but yeah, just like a... <laughs> Like a like a beaded pattern, maybe, yeah. just like little...
0: Annulations. yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. So then, then <laughs> it's like the ball is basically bouncing like it would be a football, and no one has any idea where it's, it's going to go. Now, maybe that actually wouldn't do much of anything, because if the ball hits the player's helmet, they already don't know where the ball is going to go. So this could all be much ado about nothing. But I am coming... I... Hmm... Which player in baseball do you think would be most likely to actually do this on
0: purpose? Williams, asked the team. <laughs> <laughs> <Thing. laughs> no. I, I mean, I kind of like this. I, I, I don't know if there's a rule against this. I mean, there's a rule against the fielder obstructing the base runner getting back to the base. But is there a rule against the runner obstructing the ball getting to the fielder? I Not that I know of offhand. I mean, it seems plausible. Like. It doesn't seem that dangerous because the angle of the throw. I mean, first of all, most pickoff throws are not going as fast as an actual pitch. And then usually you're not presenting your face to the pickoff throw. It's, if it's going to hit you in the head, it's probably going to hit you in the back or the side of the helmet. And you wouldn't necessarily need to hit it with your head because it's going hard enough and your body is shaped in such a way that there would be unpredictable caroms and bounces off a, a player. So, You could just kind of dive in front of it like you were taking a bullet for the president or something and (laughs) it could just bounce off you and a lot of the time probably it's gonna go into foul territory right and and if you're planning on it then you can get up and i mean how often do you think you could do that because if that was your sole goal you'd have to be somewhat careful because you don't want to get picked off so you don't want to dive for the ball and then end up getting tagged out because you missed but I mean, if that was your whole goal—to go for the ball instead of diving away from the ball—it seems like it would be pretty achievable most of the time.
1: Yeah, I think you are right. Now, you don't—maybe the pitcher would be able to tell that, like, you dove back in like a funny way, and maybe t- people would would catch on because we, right now, we don't have like a rash of runners getting drilled by throws. It just doesn't happen that often, so something would look different, but. I mean realistically the you're diving back to approximately the same place where the throw is supposed to go because the whole idea is to throw the ball such that you don't even have to really apply a tag, the ball just takes you there. So yeah, I am I am coming around on, on this as this is okay, you know you know what it would be? It's Javier Bias.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, it probably is. I don't know. I like it. I think there's an opportunity here. So, I don't know if we're overlooking something. I'm sure people will write in and tell us why this can't work, but I I'm willing to go along with it for now.
1: Yeah, and uh by the way, because we have talked about the opener in this podcast, something I didn't notice but just did notice while we were talking, whoever Jace Fry is on the White Sox is starting mm-hmm. for the White Sox. Right now, or today, Uh and he is listed as the White Sox opener. To my knowledge, Uh unless I haven't been paying attention, the White Sox had not used an opener before. So, they have a terrible pitching staff. (laughs) So, again, not a huge surprise, but this would be just another team that has now Uh taken to it. So, it is spreading like wildfire.
0: It really is. I mean, we're up to like uh, almost half the teams at this point, it seems like. I I haven't done an updated count. but And I, I said this to Michael earlier in the week, but I think that's the most fascinating aspect of the whole opener story to me is not the strategy itself which isn't really that interesting and you know (laughs) it it seems like a a marginal advantage and (laughs) but the fact that everyone has glommed onto this so quickly that is the part that fascinates me because again like it's not like you know you're saving a run a game or something it's not like this massive advantage that you know the second someone tries it everyone else says oh well we have to do this or we can't keep up it's not really that and yet it's like the first time someone did it and weathered whatever criticism there was, which I don't really remember all that much, but you know, showed that you could do it, showed that you could persuade pitchers to do it, that it would go pretty smoothly, now suddenly everyone is getting in on the act, even though it's a marginal advantage. And I guess that shows you just how cutthroat and competitive the game is right now, that teams aren't willing to leave even a sliver of an advantage really behind. and you know, I I guess it's like part and parcel with the larger bullpen revolution and changes in pitcher usage. And maybe teams look at it as a way to break down resistance to, you know, non-set roles. And that if you do this, then you can get pitchers to go along with other things that you want to do. But it is somewhat shocking to me that we've seen everyone embrace this in just the span of a few months.
1: And as soon as everyone is using the opener then suddenly the opener doesn't really mean anything anymore as an advantage. It just doesn't really exist anymore, yeah. just like, like with, with pitch framing. But I'll tell you one guy who, who didn't need an opener uh, on, on September 24th, which was a couple days ago, and that's Brian Mitchell. New Brian Mitchell update. <laughs> I guess the That'll Giants, be. 8.2 innings. Zero runs, three walks, seven strikeouts. Brian Mitchell, I saw a headline. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was paraphrased. Like, Brian Mitchell makes strong bid for rotation spot in 2019. It's like, yeah, but the rest of his season made an even stronger bid (laughs) against employment in 2019. And side note before I guess the next email, we are through four innings in New York. Jacob deGrom has allowed no runs, and Jacob deGrom has received no runs of (laughs) support.
0: Yeah. Well, good for Brian Mitchell that he's ending the season on a high note. The the interesting thing about DeGrom's start is that I think he came into this start with 9.6 war at baseball reference. So it's conceivable that if he pitches a gem here, he could surpass 10 wins and end up making the fun fact true, even if he does get the <laughs> win. It's possible mm-hmm. that he could do both of these things, so that's still in play too. But we are uh, through four and a third now. We're watching closely.
1: So where are you on, on the fun fact here? So we know DeGrom has nine wins. We know on baseball references that you said 9.6 war. And mm-hmm. so at Fangraphs, his regular war is 8.3, and his runs against per nine version of war is at 8.7. Where do mm-hmm. you... How much do you care about this fun fact, and how much do you care that some of the wars are different? To say nothing of well, like, the, the warp value at Baseball Prospectus.
0: Right. Well, I've only looked up the fun fact using the baseball reference version of war. Mm-hmm. So, And Eddie Smith in 1937 is the only pitcher, as we've mentioned, who has managed to have a higher war than his win total. I don't know, if you looked at the Fangrass version of War, maybe there would be other pitchers who have qualified, but I haven't looked. So because I'm invested in Eddie Smith and the formulation <laughs> of the fun fact that I've looked up, I've only looked at that one version of War. But yeah, it is, you know, I guess that's a problem with War-based fun facts is that they depend on which version of War you're talking about and when you're talking about it.
1: Right, and it's important when when talking about Jacob de Grum, when you have the Fangraphs version of war or the Fangraphs runs allowed version of war, it's important to understand that according to Defensive runs Saved and UZR, the Mets have had just an absolutely dreadful team defense. So I don't mm-hmm. necessarily agree with the way that baseball reference applies team defense to, to pitcher war because it mm-hmm. seems a little too simplistic. But yeah, yeah. you got to give DeGrom some benefit of the doubt because he's been playing in front of a whole bunch of clowns.
0: Yeah, not Phillies level, but, but pretty <laughs> bad. <laughs> All right. I have one from Daniel in Arlington, Virginia. On Tuesday night, September 11th, the Indians started a lineup consisting entirely of players who have been named to at least one All-Star team, apparently for the first time in at least 20 years. Despite this, they were held to two runs by the Rays pitching staff and in general are probably not in the top five playoff favorites. My question is, what would be the worst possible lineup you could make consisting entirely of All-Stars? Oh, no. So. (laughs) <laughs> I did a little research don't worry <laughs> so so this Indians lineup was not bad this was Lindor Brantley Ramirez and Encarnacion Donaldson Alonso Melky Cabrera who is still a player on a good what? team <laughs> and Jason Kipnis <laughs> yeah Melky Cabrera that's uh, a name that I haven't heard in a long long time and yet here he is in baseball still <laughs> so I think that I have done a play index here, and I just looked up players who've been on an all-star team at some point who have had at least 100 played appearances this year, and I sorted them by lowest war to highest war, and I put them in the positions, and you could quibble with which positions I tried to maximize the terribleness of this lineup, but here's what I've got. At catcher, I think Jonathan Mm Lucroy is the best one, which is sad to say, but uh, he is still not good. And he is not quite as terrible a framer as he was recently, but still not good and still doesn't hit. So catcher Jonathan Lucroy, first base, I don't think you need me to tell you, Chris Davis. (laughs) And uh, DH Victor Martinez, who is retiring and is no longer much of a hitter shortstop, Alcides Escobar of course deserves that spot. I am putting Eduardo Nunez at second base and then Jose Reyes at third base. I guess you could flip those two if you want. Then I've got Ian Desmond in left field, Dexter Fowler in center and Hunter Pence in right. Uh. Dexter Fowler <laughs> Dexter Fowler is having a terrible year. He was good as recently as last year, so, you know, maybe there's still hope for Dexter Fowler, but that is a pretty atrocious lineup. I don't know what that team would do if you ran it out there 162 times, but uh, guessing worse than the Orioles because most of those guys are sub-replacement level, I think, at this point. So, yeah, that's uh, life comes at you fast.
1: Well, if you did something like that for 162 games, at least you know the team would, by designation, get one more all-star bid. So someone Uh would have to make it. I don't know who that would be. By the way, Jacob deGrom has now completed a fifth scoreless inning of the game.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, I guess we can't just keep talking until Jacob deGrom is out of the game, (laughs) but uh, I'll provide an update in the outro. And... I don't know. I had uh, one more question here. Justin says, I'm wondering which reliever has the most wins after blowing a save in a single season all time. And uh, I got Dan Hirsch of Baseball Reference now to look that up. It's... Raleigh Fingers 1976 Raleigh Fingers Won six games After blowing saves In those same games And as far as The all-time leaders Raleigh Fingers Is second With 26 wins After blowing saves Goose Gossage Is first With 27 And you've got John Franco At 23 Roberto Hernandez At 23 Sparky Lyle At 22 Kent Tekulve At 21 And tied with 20 Rick Aguilera Lee Smith And former podcast guest John Hiller Clearly a high competition concentration here of firemen of guys from the 70s and 80s who actually pitched multiple innings which you kind of need because obviously you have a better chance of winning after you bowl the save if you're staying in for a while but <laughs> that's the answer so uh now you know
1: how do you look that up and is you that you can't
0: with the play index unfortunately but uh you conceivably could but right now it only lets you search for one form of decision so you can search for blown saves you can search for wins but you can't search for blown saves and wins in the same game i asked dan to maybe make that a feature of the play index but in the meantime he looked it up
1: (laughs) all right do we have anything else well the ground's at 64 pitches so he's got a while to
0: go all right so we will wrap it up there All right, I've got some updates for you. As I mentioned, it is hard to stay current when every day really matters. So, Jacob deGrom, he went eight innings. He gave up two hits and no runs and no walks and struck out 10, and he won the game. His 10th win of the season, he is now 10-9, and but I'll hope for the fun fact is not lost. I don't know what his baseball reference war will be in the morning, but I know that his start, according to Fangraphs, just on Wednesday, was worth 0.5 wins above replacement, according to the FIP-based war and .7 wins of a replacement according to the Runs allowed based war. So I'm hoping that he will still have more war than wins when Baseball Reference updates. He should have more than 10 war to go along with his 10 wins, but we will see. DeGrom, of course, finishes with a 1.7 ERA and also a sub 2 FIP. That is extraordinary. But I saw this extremely fun fact from Tim Britton of The Athletic, which he tweeted after Sean Newcomb, who was opposing DeGrom in that game, was done. Tim wrote The 32 opposing starters against Jacob deGrom this year Combined for a 2.45 ERA in 173 innings The only National League pitcher with a better ERA than that Is Jacob deGrom So that's the kind of competition that deGrom went up against Combine all the starters who started against him And they were better at preventing runs than anyone but him Very fun fact Okay, what else? William Zastadio went 3 for 5 no strikeouts, no walks. And you know, I don't know if his contact rate is higher than Bravik Valera's, but I do know that William Testadillo now has more than 80 plate appearances, and Bravic Valera does not. So if we set a minimum of 80 plate appearances, William Testadillo now has the highest contact rate in baseball this year, and it's as if Bravic Valera never existed. Estadio was playing third, by the way, and he made a nice snag on a liner. He's now batting 350. He's the best. As for the playoff races, the Brewers beat the Cardinals two to one, so both they and the Cubs have clinched playoff spots now The Cubs nearly lost, but ended up walking off in the 10th So they and the Brewers kept pace with each other But the Brewers have three against the Tigers to close out the season Which works in their favor In the West, those quasi-collapsing Diamondbacks beat the Dodgers While the Rockies blew out the quasi-collapsing Phillies Herman Marquez was great again Set the Rockies' single-season strikeout record So Rockies are now up half a game And one in the last column on the Dodgers Very exciting stuff The A's Chris Davis went one for. 5 with a homer. He is still batting two forty nine. Also, Shohei Otani hit his 22nd homer. And the last thing I wanted to mention, cool thing from listener and Facebook group member Jamie Gray. He created an Effectively Wild-themed crossword puzzle, which I had a lot of fun with. I will link to it on the show page at Fangraphs and in the Facebook group. Go check it out. I had some trouble completing it. It's not easy. A lot of deep cuts there. But thanks to Jamie for making that available. Alright, you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash wild. The following listeners have already done so sean p montana kyle crow alex conway mark eschen and thomas clulao thanks to all of you can also rate and review and subscribe to effectively wild on itunes and other podcast platforms and join the aforementioned facebook group at facebook.com slash group effectively wild thanks to dylan higgins for his editing assistance please keep your questions and comments for me and jeff coming via email at podcastfangrafts.com or via the patreon messaging system if you are a supporter we will be back with one more episode this week so stay tuned and we will talk to you soon i cried out for you a lot